Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about their fave genre film, maybe one that influenced their own work. And today we have got writer-director Tina Mabry joining us. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, we're so happy to have you. And for those who are not familiar with Tina's work, let me catch you all up. Originally from Tupelo, Mississippi. Do I say Tupelo correctly? Uh, you got it right. Okay. Right on the money. Most people mispronounce it. That's a, that's good. Okay. Small town. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Tina's a graduate of the USC MFA in cinema and television program. Uh, she wrote and directed her first feature, Mississippi Damned, in 2009, and ran with it at the festivals, winning top prizes at Chicago International Film Festival, Outfest, and American Black Film Festival. The film fellows, cousins Lee and Sammy, and Lee's little sister Carrie, who watched the women and their family struggle with addiction and bad love. In 2011, Mississippi Dam debuted on Showtime, and then Ava DuVernay's distribution company, Array, picked it up for film digital distribution. I remember it was on Netflix, which is when I saw it. Mm -hmm. Um, Since then, Tina's directed episodes of Future States, Dear White People, Power, Insecure, The Mayor, and Black Jesus, as well as the American Girl film Melody 1963, Love Has to Win, which won a DGA award for children's programming last year. And on Queen Sugar and Queen of the South, she is both writer and director. She lives in Los Angeles with her wife, Morgan Stiff, who's also her manager and a lovely person to chat with on the emails, you know? Yeah, she's great. (laughs) So today, I'm very excited. Tina chose one of my favorite movies from the 90s. (laughs) Tina, could you tell us a little bit about why Set It Off is one of your favorite genre films? Because we're talking Set It Off today. The reason why it's one of my favorite genre genre films is because in 96, I went to go see that movie three times in the theater. And it was just like the most we had never seen at that point, at that age. I was 18. Mm-hmm. We hadn't seen black women like just taking over, shooting it up, like taking control of their situations and being the lead in that way in, the act, in an action film. Yeah. Um, that wasn't something that was dated back to the black exploitation days. So that it was a different kind of dynamic in the way that it was handled. And so for me, I felt like it was a film that you know, that we kind of kind of forget about you can as it's 20 years old. But I think that for so many of us it was a good coming of age film um, in a weird way, in that way. We're not robbing banks, but <laughs> but we, you know, the sense of empowerment. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Maybe you kept that movie theater in business that that summer when it came out. We kept Tupelo. The, we kept it was in old, we were at Ole Miss. I was in undergrad and my freshman year. And yeah, we kept that little theater open. <laughs> Yes, we did. (laughs) Um, And for those who haven't seen Set It Off, today's episode will give you some spoilers. Sorry, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. My motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, some disagree. And if you would like to pause and peep Set It Off first, please go ahead now. So let's introduce Set It Off. Written by Kate Lanier and Takashi Buford and directed by F. Gary Gray in 1996, Set It Off stars Jada Pinkett Smith, Queen Latifah, Vivica A. Fox, and Kimberly Elise in an action drama that is as emotional as it is thrilling. Vivica Fox is Frankie, a disillusioned bank teller who loses her job after it's discovered that she knows the robber who just held her bank up and shot a woman, which blood sprays all over her face. That scene is 
It's so intense. Um, so Frankie is given a job by her pals, Cleo, Stoney, and Titi, who all work for a janitorial service cleaning offices in fancy Los Angeles houses. Stoney, played by Pinkett Smith, loses her brother when the police murder him for mistaken identity. Uh, the four women eventually decide that the only way they can get out of their crushing debt and take care of themselves and their family is if they also rob a bank. Do you know Lorenz and them got away with 20 grand? Damn. See, that's what the fuck we need to do. Rob a bank. That's crazy. Uh, really, though. The four of us could take a bank. Look at that crackhead Darnell could rob a bank. We could take a bank. They do one job and then another. And in the meantime, Stoney falls in love with a wealthy banker. Cleo, played by Queen Latifah, is out of control, spending all her money on her girlfriend Ursula, and Titi loses her baby to Child Protective Services. Just when they think they're out, someone steals their stash of money, and they have to do one more final job to pay off their debts and get out with a profit. But there is a cop who's on to them, and this last job just isn't going to go well. Yes, it did not go well in the end for them. It did go well for Jada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just I, watching that again. I was like, that last scene. But okay, we'll get back to that last scene. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I want to start this off with something, you know, F. Gary Gray obviously was doing uh, music videos before, and then he did Friday mm-hmm. before Set It Off. So he's got a, a musical pedigree, specifically in Los Angeles, too. So a lot of the songs that we're hearing in this, I want to talk about the music because we've got like Bone Thug and Harmony, um, we got En Vogue, we got Seal, Busta Rhymes, we've got like all of these people. Parliament, and, Flashlight, playing at the party. Yeah, Flashlight's yep. the first song, mm-hmm. right? All right, so you've got this, um, you know, music is woven into this, and I feel like it really tells the story of this place and these people really well. Now, I want to ask you, you're trying to tell the story of Mississippi in your first film. And Mississippi, I think, is an oft misunderstood place from people in like coastal cities. They're just like, oh, it's just southern, I guess, you know. Um, They're like Mississippi (laughs) burning or something, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm wondering if that was on your mind, you know, when you were trying to figure out uh, what the music would be, what the sound would be like. Well, I knew for me with Mississippi Dam what I really wanted the music to be like. And because we wanted a film that was going to really feel authentic because it was based on a true story based on my family. So everything needed to be organic to that environment because the place itself was a character. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I remember just, you know, from a childhood, it's like Saturday morning. If you ask anybody from Mississippi, you say, what's on the radio? Blues. And that's what's going to be playing on Saturday morning on the station. Mm-hmm. And so there's certain songs that are just extremely pivotal to not only that time period, but also to the region, you know, and like Hole in the Wall um, at the bingo hall scene in Mississippi Dam. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's so funny. It's like everybody I know from Mississippi or Alabama, like they're singing the song, they know it. And then there's some people from the South, like, I, you know, not from the South, they're like, I'm bobbing to it, but. I never heard the song. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you don't know male waiters. See, and it's but it's about us um, you know, really trying to expose people to what's authentic to something they don't understand. And like you said, it's something that people do say, Oh yeah, you're in the South. Yeah. And but not realizing that every state in the South is so authentic to itself. You know, my wife is from North Carolina. She comes to Mississippi for the first time, total cultural shock. Mm -hmm. Um, We walk in the mall. There's nothing but Confederate flags. And she's like, why is no one saying anything? 
And I said, because this is, unfortunately, people have become desensitized to it Mm -hmm. and they walk by it because it's become what's the norm in the environment. And so even within the South, there's so many things that people, you know, it's so easy to generalize what the area is like. But for me, looking at Mississippi and especially, you know, all of it's pretty small, Mm -hmm. (laughs) except for our capital, Jackson, and it's still small. But... For us coming up in the small town, hitting those back country roads and <laughs> that have been paved, you know, the, these are the songs that you listen to on the radio and you went riding. You just went riding just to relax and just have fun and listen to music. Um, I want to go a little bit further with F. Gary Gray's experience in music, but specifically in music videos. Um, his uh, cinematographer for Set It Off was the late Mark Wachowski, mm-hmm. um, who died in 2009 and who was and still is best known for shooting music videos and live concert videos. The only films that he had shot actually were Teen Witch, Red Rock West, and Set It Off. Um, and I feel like you can tell from his camera work that he is a music video cinematographer. It's always the camera's always moving, it's dipping, it's craning. Um, it's very rarely and maybe not at all on sticks. So it's never stationary. You're always getting um, a sense where you're swooping into a scene or swooping out of a scene, which I think actually it works quite well for a heist movie where things have to be fast paced and you have to make sure that the story is flowing and there's no um, uh, uh, static spots. Exactly. And I think that's the thing, too. Yeah, I I don't think there's one handheld shot in the entire movie. Mm. Not one. I don't think there is. Not a one. And as you were saying, it lends itself to the genre of action, of keeping things moving, keeping the fast pace, keeping the everything. The camera is just has to have the momentum mm-hmm. of um, what's going on in the sequences and also what's going on within the characters. And so for me, like for him coming, you know, I'm like, I love the crane shot coming down to the house, coming down, looking, you know, I love one of the most beautiful shots. I love the shot on the roof and they're looking at the plant that closed, which yes. has, so not only is it beautifully in a cinematic way, um, but it also has so many, um, it has so many political things that it's saying. It's a much deeper scene than just that. And so I think that when you couple, he was able to successfully couple his music video style mm-hmm. with an intimate style of telling a personal personal stories of women who live in the projects who are just trying to make ends meet and live and survive. Mm-hmm. And But it's hard to when the world is not trying to give you any kind of leg up. And the thing is, 20 years later, we're getting the same, we're having the same kind of experiences, and that's an issue, you know, that we have to address as a society. Mm-hmm. One of the, the interesting things I thought there's a really great scene where um, Jada Pinkett Smith's character Stony um, has just performed a sexual act for for money because she is desperate, and it's dawn mm. in Los Angeles, and you know you see her uh, from the back. She's she's walking away from the camera, and that time the camera is not moving. I mm. noticed that that was kind of a still, like it was a meditative kind of thing, and I and I appreciated um, the treatment in that instance of you know it it's not 
um, that's not the moment for the cameras to swoosh in or to to move out or to pan really quick. You know, that's I thought it was really artfully done those moments. Exactly because you didn't need those camera moves, those things to help tell that scene. You have one well written scene, two you have the performances, and you just let them play that out. I mean, that's such a big thing. That's a big decision of a, a woman having to decide whether or not I'm going to make a sexual transaction to help my brother get into school. Nate, before I come work for you, yeah, I need an advance. There's a little problem that I need to fix. Uh, oh, I can do that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. But I mean, Tony Newsom got to give me a reason to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And what would that be? Oh, come on now, you know. And only to find out he didn't even get in. Yeah. Um, and I don't know why she, I, I will say I don't know why she tore the check up because I would have been like, we can, I'm catching this regardless. But <laughs> yes, I, was, I did too. It was just like, no, I did this and I'm that's fine. And it happened and I need that money anyway. So that doesn't matter. Yeah. So I mean, that always kind of like everybody in the theater and everybody know that watches always goes, no! <laughs> <laughs> But what I think that is actually so interesting about it, even though we're like screaming, like, no, don't tear it up. No, it's I didn't want to do that. I sacrificed so much. I gave myself up for X amount of dollars on these zeros. Mm -hmm. And it's like it's for you. It's not for me. It was for you. And that was your dream. That was my dream for you. And ripping all of that up. And that means that that made that sacrifice even greater because, you know, for him and what she was willing to do. And also it completely motivates, of course, the financial need that they have as they're going through the rest of this film. Yeah. And and I want to say that in Mississippi Damned, you also have a person who needs to make um, a very difficult decision about whether or not they want to accept money for sex because they're desperate and because they need a way to get out. You do. I mean, and that's the thing. I don't think people realize, and, and I, well, I think people are starting to realize this now, the opportunity, especially with what we've got going on with sexual harassment and abuse and all of these um, horrific stories that are coming out that we have. And if you've been in the industry, you knew about it, um, some of these people, for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and then some of them you're completely shocked. You're like, oh, my God, I didn't know that was happening. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's something that's really important for us to realize that women have been sacrificing themselves in one way or another to advance and try to survive, whether that is we are not getting the same pay as we see what's going on with E and how they're talking about that now. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, we are one. Do you want the job? That's the same thing. I mean, sitting so, a woman in a hotel room saying, do you want this part that's going to make your career or do you want me to blackball you? It's the same thing that to me is synonymous with whether or not, you know, Stoney is going to sleep with him in order to get it. He's like, and you're gonna, not going to do it until you, I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you see him on top of her and you just see her holding her face and just covering it, he's so sweaty and just at it. And then her washing her, trying to get that off of her, you know. That in the shower after she leaves that house, you know, you feel that. And to me, that's something that is echoing not only what was happening then, what happened years before, what the culture is and the nature of our business in Hollywood. But, you know, I think that these are the things that show you that 
um, just like I think Oprah adequately put into her Golden Globe speech, mm-hmm. was that this is happening to women everywhere. Mm-hmm. This is not just people in our industry. No, this is about the woman who is also working at Cracker Barrel, who is sitting there as a waitress, who is one, either one being discriminated against if she's a person of color and then or if she's gay. There's the other part. And then three. She's a woman. And you cannot discern. Sometimes I go back to Mississippi and you see those things when we go to Cracker Barrel. Yeah. And I should just, you know, and I'm like, you you automatically feel the need that you need to stand up for people. And I think that's what we should do. And um, a lot of times we find ourselves quieting ourselves as not to rock the boat or we feel like, let me give that person a chance to speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but in actuality, if they're silent, we need to speak up. Regardless if they're not silent, we still need to speak up mm-hmm. because you need to know that you have some solidarity and and which kind of goes back to the film. That's it's a completely to me. It's a really good indication of like black feminism. Um, and I mean, you kind of can look into like Audre Lorde. It has some of those kind of feel 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 to it. And, you know, where you have these women who are doing it for themselves, not waiting on a man to take the initiative and save the day. And they have each other's backs. Too. Exactly. And the point, that's the whole thing about sisterhood and being together. And for them, the four of them growing up, being together and trying to make sure that they give sacrifice. It's even about spreading the money. No, you're going to share with Titi. It don't matter if she ran out the bank the first time. Yeah. No, she we, needs it because she's got a kid who needs, she, she needs to get back. Exactly. Yeah. And she's like, I don't want your money, Frankie. You know, and, and it's Frankie like, you know, and she's like, realizes this is my sister what the fuck am i tripping about mm-hmm. so uh we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be right back but i'm i'm definitely want to talk to um tina about some of the cinematography on her projects because there's some really fun things that i've heard about mississippi dam so we'll be right <laughs> back Hey everyone, Freddie Wong, Matt Arnold, and Will Campos, here to tell you about Story Break, a writer's room podcast where every week we, the Hollywood geniuses behind Video Game High School, have one hour to turn a humble idea into an awesome movie. Thrill as we weave the tragic tale of Jar Jar, a Star Wars story. We're going to double down on everything that made the prequels great. Jar Jar, (laughs) trade federation, (laughs) politics. Gasp as we assemble a pantheon of heroes for the Kellogg Cinematic Universe. We could get rid of Snap, Crackle, Pop. I wouldn't even miss them. You're crazy. They die in the second Oh, come on. <laughs> and join us as we make fun of Matt as he struggles to name a single Beyonce song. Well, yeah, put a finger on it. Sure, she wants to be Beyonce. Put a um, finger on it. Beyonce's <laughs> famous song. Will we break the story or will the story break us? Find out by joining us in the writer's room every Thursday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm here with Tina Marie talking about Set It Off today. Um, and so we, we covered some of the cinematography of Set It Off and, you know, went, went down that road. But I want to make sure that we go back to um, the cinematography of Mississippi Damned because it is beautiful. And it is also done by Bradford Young. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a, an amazing cinematographer. This is back in 2009 when you were working with him. And this is yeah. two years, I think, before he was with uh, D. Reese on Pariah. And then two years before, uh, you know, he went to work with Ava DuVernay on Mill of Nowhere and then Selma later on. And, you know, now what? He got the nomination for Arrival. Um, and then, yeah. 
I mean, he's not. He's doing horrible in his career. I mean, he's shooting a Han Solo <laughs> spinoff. I mean, I, I ruined Brad's career with this day. I'm. What can I say? Like, like, <laughs> you were one of his earliest collaborations, and I would love to talk uh, to you about what that was like collaborating with someone um, on on this project and finding the visual style because there's a lot of um, there's handheld work. You know, it's not shaky cam, but it's like really intimate. Um, the lighting I always thought was so interesting. The lighting design for the for um, for every scene, every single scene has very very um, uh, particular lighting design, really designed to this um, to evoke these feelings, you know. And can you talk about maybe some of your favorite scenes to work with him on? Yeah, I mean, I you know I'm going to kind of uh, go back a little bit. Like the the reason why I first discovered Brad's work. Um, I saw D's short film, Pariah, which he shot. And I, I had never went, I, I say to this day, that is the best short film I've ever seen. Um, and to, it was such, so visually striking. And I was looking for a DP at the time for Mississippi Dam. And I was drawn in into, in a way between the story and the cinematography. And I was like, I got to try to meet and find this dude. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you know, I contacted D and she was like, oh, here's Bradford's information. You know, call Brad. And and that's how we ended up collaborating because mm-hmm. she was waiting. You know, they have to, of course, get the money to try to make their feature for Pariah. So yeah, it's going to take forever usually to, to I mean, get the yeah, money. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a hustle and, and they did it. And so in between the short and the feature, uh, you know, I got him from Mississippi Dam. And for us, what we wanted to do was really make this feel like you are in the world with these characters. Mm-hmm. And in order to feel like you were in the world, you weren't going to have any crane shots. You weren't going to have, the you know, those nice, sweeping, overly beautiful steady cam shots. You were going to have things. I mean, Brad did. He did push-ups for like three months, being preparing to carry this heavy thirty-five, super thirty-five millimeter camera and all this film mm-hmm. to prepare for it because we knew it was going to be majority handheld and operated by him, and so. You know, that was something that was really important for us is to look at the language of it. I mean, someone even offered us at once, you guys want a helicopter shot? Which I'm like... <laughs> a helicopter shot from Mississippi Dam. Exactly. Hilarious. Like, having seen the film. <laughs> I'm like, where would that kind of fit in? But, you know, the thing is, I think what's so important about knowing about, you know, the cinematography is Brad and I initially, initially were like, no. And and that's one of the things I appreciated about him as a DP and knowing that he does serve the work. Mm-hmm. And he does not use something that does not belong to that particular story. Yeah. And a lot of DPs sometimes will want to grab and they'll be like, yeah, let me have that. Let me have this. But that was not him. Uh, and so it was about sticking to the intimacy, feeling like a fly on the wall. I'm, I want to continue on with directing people in emotional scenes because the thing is, um, I've got like a, a really interesting story from F. Gary Gray from when he was directing um, uh, Jada Pinkett Smith in one of her crying scenes. Um, and he said that he brought in like the Sony clamshell, which for people who are very young, you don't know. It's like a <laughs> it is a, a giant hunk of a computer that was like a precursor to a laptop kind of thing. <laughs> so he brought in a Sony clamshell and then uh, he played her a scene from Glory, the one where Denzel Washington has a tear in his eye mm-hmm. um, while he's being whipped. And 
He said he was always embarrassed by that moment um, of his direction because he he learned from that experience because he realized that wasn't how she wanted to be directed um, because he he wasn't as experienced in directing in emotional scenes and so it was hard for him to find a language in the in his earlier films to convey what he wanted to actors and Jada Pinkett Smith he he concedes you know was just like I get it I like she you know brushed it off and yeah. was like I, okay I'm a trained actor I'm gonna know what to do with this. But I'm I'm wondering if you had um, any difficulties finding these ways to direct uh, people in emotional scenes. I mean, I'm sure that USC prepared you as much as they could. But when you're on set and on this feature or, and even in television, too, because um, uh, Queen Sugar has a lot of emotional moments. Yeah. Like I've shed I've shed tears we watching this a lot. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like ugh, some of those finales, too. Um they're just really intense. And can you talk about, you know, how you found your language and your process for directing people? You know, how do you get someone to cry? Well, how do I get someone to cry is I, I never tell anyone. No one should ever feel beholden to cry, even yeah. if it's scripted, uh, because it's about what your emotion, um, what the emotion of the character is. What is your intention? Mm-hmm. And so to me, you know, I do. The USC, I do. I got to give props up for that. And I took a directing class under Nina Foch. Um, um, who's passed away since but she gave us all this sheets of list of intentions because she was an actress from so many years mm-hmm. but like you know make make the boy cry make this happen make that you know so that you had very distinct motivations that you could pull from which I always put on every script just in case I know if that actor may run into trouble mm. about so that your intention is to do this it'll give that result and also what I learned was through auditions and watching the tapes even though you might not have cast a person they may have had a great interpretation or read on something I go through and dissect their performance find out what their intentions are and put it and bring it with me can you explain set. a little bit more about like what the intentions are? Can you give an example of that? Um, even even from something like on Queen Sugar or whatever you you know maybe something that you could point out. Um, yeah, let me try to think about something on Queen Sugar. Because um, uh, I mean, I think I'm trying to think of some because it's like about three pages of sheets and I'm trying to go through between <laughs> writing like. <laughs> getting, I feel like I'm giving you like episode a, directing too. I'm giving you a pop quiz. I'm very yeah, I know. sorry. That's okay. It's okay. I haven't had one in a good couple of decades, so uh, <laughs> you know it's got to keep me fresh on my toes. But no, you know, <laughs> but you know, it's the thing is, you know, like one of the ones that was the breakup scene between Charlie and Davis, mm-hmm. and she's standing at that window. Yeah. Um, and she's looking out, and, you, and we luckily it was lightning, and it happened to work out in our favor. There's a breakup scene that's right out in the window. I'm like, go ahead. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's silently like, yes, yes, yes. you know, like, <laughs> perfect. But the thing is, like, try not to let him see you cry. Don't show him. Don't give him that satisfaction. Okay. You know, um, and the thing is, she held all that in so much. Um, when the scene between the two of them is that right when we yelled cut and we finished the scene, she cried. We Well, I held her. We both cried. But, you know, but she cried and she was like, I don't know if I gave you what you were looking for. I don't know if I did. I said, yes, you did, sweetie. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. What you're holding on to is what Charlie has held on to in this series since episode one. Yeah. And what you're feeling now as an actor is the release of what you've been holding in entire season. Mm-hmm. Trust me, you did it. And that's the thing about it that 
one of the things people sometimes um, don't get is that it's sometimes more powerful not to cry and you, when you see that person on the brink. Because if you think about our human behavior, we don't want to cry in front of other people most of the time. Yeah. We're holding it back. And that's what makes it authentic and what makes you lean forward, what makes you more interested because you can feel that person fighting that. Mm-hmm. So don't give that person the satisfaction of winning. Don't, you know, how, you know, give that person a motivation of, you know, you know, sugarcoat, sugarcoat this for the baby, mm-hmm. you know, even though it's a grown person that's in a scene, you know, yeah. sugarcoat it for them because you don't want to hurt their feelings. Yeah. And so those kind of things like end up happening or you switch it in reverse of like, no, your intention is to basically make him cry. And that's for one actor, not the actor who's supposed to cry. Mm-hmm. Make You make him cry. And the thing is, if she can pull that out or he can pull that out of that performance and does that adjustment correctly, then guess what? That other actor is going to cry. Yeah, the reaction is going to happen. Exactly. I'm not going to ever talk to the actor who's crying and tell them that's their motivation because it's not. It's the one they're in the scene with. And they're, you know, I and I also, you know, I too, like, had, you know, done that in film school too, like Gary. You know, you look at it like, oh, yeah, this is it, the glory tier, which, you know, we all... <laughs> Which, Everyone knows the glory tier. Yeah, at this I got point. on Glenn Turman. I was like, I had the joke with him on Queen Sugar uh, in episode one when he cries. Mm-hmm. I said, "Oh, you're doing the glory tier, huh? <laughs> you did." <laughs> Yes. I was like, I said, and you're doing it towards the key light. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, wow. That's just, that's talent right there. I mean, and it, I mean, Glenn is so, he's such a pleasure to work with. And he just started laughing. He was like, and that's what he said. Girl, I've been doing this a long time. <laughs> but I'm like, we got the glory to going in. But, you know, the, but the thing is, when you do that, and what I learned in film school, too, is that I'm making you imitate someone. That's not the same mm-hmm. as acting. I'm telling you to imitate a performance, but that's not organic. Mm-hmm. So that the thing is, I can watch that for myself of seeing, you know, Denzel Washington get whipped and him having that and the restraint of trying not to don't let them break you. Mm-hmm. Don't give them the satisfaction of breaking you down to the point of that you lose the little power you have, which is your self-respect. That's where the scene is, and that's where their tear comes from. Mm-hmm. So telling that to the actor, that part, that will help hopefully get that performance that you want out. And, of course, you usually have about three or four different intentions <laughs> for each one for each each time because you don't know which one's going to click. And then sometimes you don't even need any of them because the actor just goes a totally different direction and it's so much better than what you thought of (laughs) or two they just got it um and that's just the way that that is so i never um i mean i write it in scripts myself you know i'll write sometimes character cries or whatever and and that was one thing that kylie who played young carrie um in the miscarriage scene she i had it where she cries and she was like i was she was so scared i'm like baby you don't have to cry don't worry you don't have to and we went through the scene. I talked to her. You know, we kind of talked about what she was going to see because it was, a, you know, going to be blood and this chaotic scene. And then she watches it. And as she's watching it, because she was getting close to the actors very much, she actually just started crying. And then and I said, cut. And she was like, yes! <laughs> she, she was like, I did it! And so the whole crew, everybody, I mean, it's like all the actors, everybody was like, yes, you, yes, 
going. You rocked it. I love that you're like giving high fives after like a really like that's a gut wrenching scene. <laughs> that is not what I would expect to have happen afterwards. But I. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows how much fun we had making Mississippi Dam. I, I, I don't think anyone has any idea. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the actors in both Set It Off and in Mississippi Dam um, because uh, we've got Queen Latifah, um, Kimberly Elise. I want to talk about that. And, and then also um, Tessa Thompson. Um, so we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. I'm comedian Emily Heller. And I'm cartoonist Lisa Hannawalt. And we're the hosts of Baby Geniuses. Do you want to learn weird new facts? Do you like hearing successful creative women talk about their poop? Do you want the scoop on Martha Stewart's pony? If you answered yes to any of these questions, our show is for you. We interview people like Paul F. Tompkins, Kristen Shaw, Michael Che, and more. So check us out on Maximum Fun. And let us mess up your brain. Yes, please. Baby Geniuses, we know everything. Baby Geniuses, tell us something we don't know. And welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm here with Tina Mabry, and we are talking Set It Off today. Um, one of the things I wanted to get into is uh, Queen Latifah and Set It Off, because Queen Latifah said, in even in re- recent interviews, that Set It Off was the hardest role that she has ever played. She had to sit down uh, her nieces and nephews, she said, and explain to them that like she had an opportunity to do something really good, and that you know people may see it differently, and they may you know tease them or make fun of them at school because she is playing a lesbian character. But she wanted to do a service to the gay African-American community and do it right. And I got to say that I, you know, I guess I didn't even notice, you know, when I first watched it, I was just like, oh, yeah, like a gay character. And she seems it's Queen Latifah. She's really cool. But when I think back in like 1996, like, holy shit. And she went out there, you know, like she like she had a beautiful girlfriend, Ursula. Ursula. (laughs) (laughs) That that dancing on the chorus. (laughs) Right. And and she, um, you know, it didn't seem to me a caricature, but I hope that you can weigh in on that, like what that means. But she had a lot lot of pressure on her to because there weren't other depictions to um to basically carry what a gay character might be i mean that's it it was so pivotal and i wasn't out at the time when i when i watched set it off of course you know you're gay but you just you're, mm. you know i'm in mississippi and i'm closeted yeah. but that was the first time i've i had at that time seen a black female gay character or just a black gay character on screen. Yeah. So for me, I was like, whoa. I mean, like, and I know she was coming off, she was living single. I'm like, so, you know, I'm like, it's a complete juxtaposition of, of that. And so for her to go and play Cleo, which is one of the most favorite characters that you just love, you know, it's like the shooting the gun. Cleo, sit now. <laughs> Yes. Oops, the accidental good yes, shot. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I like Jada's got like a leash on her, just like, no, like you are out of control. You sit. Exactly. <laughs> like, sit down. <laughs> and, you know, but for her to do that, yeah, I mean, I remember, and it was so many different kind of mixed emotions. And even amongst the people that I was with, that I was friends with, you could tell who was uncomfortable because they were like, ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then... You can tell who was like, they were like, okay, this seems like life. And then, you know, the one, the friends I had that had come from out of state, you know, uh, in undergrad, and, you know, actually experienced more. Yeah. Um, 
with that, but to I had just it it was something that it sticks in your mind the entire time, and I, you know, have talked to people about it, and, and I knew that you know I was going to do set it off, and I actually at, talked to a couple of people, and they were like, that was the first time I saw a gay black woman on T, like that was it, I couldn't believe it, and these are people coming from so many different generations, yeah, coming from my age, going to up to fifties, yeah, because really the only one I had seen in my older sister who's 10 years older than me I had seen Desert Hearts yes, yes. which I loved yes absolutely loved. it's an underrated classic we'll say oh my god it's underrated I mean you know as a sitting there with my sister who was you know come she was out and for her to you know I'm just tagging along 10 years behind just looking you know on the screen but but trust me really looking in a way that she didn't understand you know, I'm like mm-hmm. I'm looking too to try to relate as well because this I feel like I'm an outsider too you know, and that's that's the way that I felt, so I could relate to it. But to have Cleo play, here's this black woman, and she's gonna play a butch lesbian, and I mean, and it's no, there's no shame in it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple comments that a couple characters make, you know, a little bit like here's like a little dig, but it doesn't demonize yes her as a lesbian, which I love that part, and I think that's what why I think it was so important for Queen to do this role. And I'm glad that she did that. And she was able to sit down with people, to, you know, her family to tell them what she was doing, why she was doing it, because it was something she, I don't know if she even knows how many lives that she affected by just seeing that, that because once you see those images of things that you can recognize, regardless of, no, no, I might not recognize her smoking the blunt and passing it on, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I understand the attraction to other women. Mm-hmm. And I understand being the minority sometimes within your group of friends and being the only person who's gay. That I understand. And the thing is, too, what made it so much important to me that really it spoke to with what Gary was doing is that those three women were still, that was were her girls. It didn't matter if she was gay. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, this, stop oh, yeah. spending money. <laughs> yeah. Their major problem was just like, oh, my God, you guys are just like, like, your girlfriend doesn't even talk to us. Like, it, that was the problem. <laughs> Not that she was gay, but it was just like, your girlfriend's got an attitude with us and we don't like it. And you know? I know that girl, too. I know that kind of woman. And I'm with, I'm like, yep, because we're all like this. She's mute. I don't know what's up with your girl. <laughs> what's going on? But, you know, all right. How you doing, Ursula? What's up? The fuck is up with that? She don't talk. Oh, really? We support you, but we. But I hope she speaks to you because she does not talk. I want to go uh, a little bit into um, some casting decisions uh, before we before we leave because um, I know when uh, Kimberly Elise took on this role, that was her first feature yeah. film, and then we got to see her more in Beloved. I think a couple years later, which mm-hmm. is a really powerful, powerful performance that you can see kind of this um, this struggle and an internal struggle inside her and in, when she's in um, Set It Off, you know? Because yes. she's not she's not stable in Set It Off. She's, you know, she's kind of like the, the not a hothead, but she's got a lot of internal struggle going on um, and she's one of the most enigmatic characters in yeah. that movie. Um, 
but the thing is, you know, she went on to to have like a great career. She's still working, still doing great stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, it must be a great feeling, you know, for F. Gary Gray to be like, oh, I totally took this woman on. I discovered her, and then she went on to be in Beloved. You know, yeah. like that's amazing. And I look at Carrie. Like that was my introduction to Tessa Thompson. Um, I hadn't seen her TV work before. I when I saw her in Mississippi Damned, I was just like, oh. And then you see her career, you know, like kind of snowball into now being in Thor. I know. I love it, right? <laughs> so, I mean, what is like, how did you cast her? How did you how did you find, you know, someone like Tessa Thompson? And like, can you see when you cast these actors that they have like this incredible future ahead of them? Um, our, we had great casting directors for Mississippi Dam, um, Meg Mormon and Sunday Bowling. And they brought Tessa was like the last person to bring in. And we kind of had between the adult carries, so to speak, three people. And one of them was she could play the piano. She was great at acting. But Tessa walked in, and what she brought in the audition, I was like, that's her. I knew it. From the, It was a um, strength within vulnerability and cut, trying to cover cracks mm-hmm. and how she was handling all of that. And not trying to be a broken woman, but be the caretaker, the nurturer. Mm-hmm. And she knocked it out of the park. So base, I always cast on, you know, it's about performance for me over anything else. Let's get that right. And, I mean, I'm my thing is I believe that, of course, great actors, I'm like, I'm always praying and hoping that that the world in our industry sees the talent they have and their, their careers can catapult. But, I mean, I, I you know, I don't. I didn't know. Like, yeah, she was doing Thor, but I had that doesn't <laughs> like, surprise me. Someday in the future, I can see, see. her as a superhero. <laughs> She's going to be doing that. Yeah. You know, you know, yeah. you know. I'm like, but that's the thing about it. She was a superhero that just didn't have the have it on. And the thing is, the same with Brad. The same with all everybody else in that film. All 36 actors, all 100 and something crew members. Mm-hmm. That's the thing. They were all super, you know, heroes, and they had that. And so anywhere that all of them went, anybody and what they've succeeded and how their careers have grown, grown have, that doesn't surprise me at all. Because I know how dedicated they are to their work and their craft, how much they love it, mm-hmm. and how good they are. And they just have a talent. So it was not a surprise to me. It was one of those things where, um, you know, when she got ready to do Dear, Dear White People, um, I know that they were trying to get in touch with her. They couldn't find her. And so Lena oh, really? Waith, yeah, Lena Waith called me. Me and Lena had met. And so, and Lena was like, I don't know. I know this is out of line. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to track her down. I'm having trouble. You know how it goes. And I was like, yeah, man, I know. And uh, she's like, I was wondering, do you mind? Like, can, you know, can I have her number or call? And I said, I said, let me call Tessa, see if she's cool with it. Then I'll let you know. I called Tessa. Tessa was like, I didn't even know about this role. Yes, call me. Oh, shit. <laughs> so the, and then so I gave him the number, and there you go. And now she's in Dear White People. She was in Dear White People. So, you know, but that's the thing, too. It's like people, we all see each other in different works. And I think that's the thing about the film community of where we're trying to do and to come together collectively. Mm-hmm. This is not a competition. This is a collective of where we try to make things better. Mm-hmm. And so if there's something I can do for you, 
I'm going to do it to help you and vice versa. Hopefully it works out the same way. But we're and that's the thing. We all wanted to see each other go come up and succeed and to cut through sometimes of the political red tape that you go through the bureaucracy of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it's it is not a shock at all. Like if anybody in in Mississippi Dan was an Oscar, I'm going to tell you right now, I would not be shocked. I wouldn't either. <laughs> and oh, yeah. I, I think we're that's a good place to leave it at that, too. <laughs> so I want to thank you so much for coming in and speaking with me today, Tina. This is really wildly informative. I love Set It Off, and I love Mississippi Dan and what you're doing in TV. Let's hope that Tina gets another feature. Um, <laughs> fingers, yeah. fingers, fingers crossed. crossed. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening today. Next week, we're going to be talking to horror icon Barbara Crampton And we're going to be talking about Raw, which, as many of you guys know, is one of my very favorite films of 2017. So I'm very excited about that. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read them on air. If you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. This is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.